0: You're listening to a podcast from 702.
1: 702,
0: The Naked Scientist. It is 20 minutes to three. And that's when we say good afternoon to Dr. Chris Smith, The Naked Scientist. Hello, Chris.
1: Hello. Do you know my solution to being stuck on hold for ages? I discovered that some of these companies, they can't cut you off. Uh They can't throw you off if they're talking to you. So if you phone for customer service and you say, I've got a problem, and they say, What's your problem? You say, I can't get through to the helpline. <laughs> then they have to stay on the helpline with you until they've solved your problem, which All is not right. being able to get onto the helpline. <laughs> I had one poor guy on from one well known telecoms company that I use, which has got a name of a company named after a particular num- numeric number. <laughs> And uh, I think it's the proportion of the time, in percentage terms, I can actually make and receive calls. Actually, because most yeah. of the time I spend the conversation going, "You're breaking up. Can you say that again?" <laughs> but I've got this poor guy on all the way along the motorway from London to Bristol. And that's how long it took them, and that's a very long journey. It's a it's an hour and a bit in the car. So
0: <laughs> you called the company. He was and on there the entire him. time. Yeah
1: listening and I said are you enjoying your hold music and, and he said well not really no but eventually they did pick up and the guy goes well I can hand you on to my colleague now and I thought, "I hope that message gets back to the boss as yeah. to why that guy spent so long resolving that inquiry because yes. it, it is appalling how long we end up on hold especially during the pandemic with more people working from mm. home everything's ground to a halt and you think well we have had 18 months to get used to this now come on pull your finger out everybody but it, it's not just a South African problem it mm. is a universal problem I think.
0: Yeah it is absolutely and now we have our call centers in other countries you call and someone is serving you while they're sitting well with us it's mostly in India so
1: yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. it's Same Delhi. I, I, normally, I normally do ask them what the weather's like and that kind of thing. I have quite a nice <laughs> conversation with these people. They're, they're all very friendly but you think oh, God, I would not like to do their job.
0: <laughs> right well let's get into the questions that have come in today. One we were both tagged in on, on Twitter. don't know if you saw it I thought it was interesting. Does the CNN international National headline that said, an increasing proportion of female elephants in Mozambique's uh, Gorongosa National Park have been born without tusks. Scientists say it's an evolutionary response to the brutal killing of elephants for their ivory tusks during the country's 15 year civil war. Um, so one of our listeners tagged, uh, wanting to know if you could maybe um, break this down a little bit more this evolutionary
1: response. It's been published this week in one of the leading science journals uh, how they've actually done this, and it's down to genetics. And the answer is yes, there does appear to be this selective pressure which is being brought to bear by preying on elephants that have big, impressive tusks. If you pick those away from the gene pool, then you're going to select for animals that have either much smaller tusks, slower growing tusks that don't appear yet, or tusks that don't appear at all. Mm. And those, if that's driven by genes which it is then you're going to leave in the population the genes that tend to cause that trait more than genes that code for big tusks because obviously the reason elephants have big tusks for, for defense but also for mating and dating because elephants size up each other and they decide who's the best mate and who's the fittest mate who's the best natural leader etc and that's how they kind of decide their pecking order with within reach of other considerations as well and and so if you remove that positive selection, then obviously there's a potential disadvantage. But if you've got an even stronger selective pressure being exerted on the animals from humans coming along and picking off the ones that do have a particular trait and leaving behind those that don't, mm. then what you'd end up with is naturally a selection for the ones that genetically are endowed not to do the thing that is drawing people to them or the the, the selective pressure to them. And that's what they think is happening. And you can imagine how that would would happen in humans. If you went around picking on people who had a certain characteristic and and killing them, then there would be fewer of those people with the genes for that characteristic. And that characteristic would die out. I mean, we've seen this in history, haven't we, where Mm. this has happened atrocious as it is and so that's the same thing being borne out with the with the elephant population as well so it shows that you you can see some aspects of how selective pressure and evolution are manifest in front of our eyes
0: oh it's so sad it's so tragic that this is also as a result of uh, human beings um human impact absolutely Mm, we've got a 10 year old on the line you're in centurion hi Gabelo. um how are you i want to ask a question okay
1: Cabello? What?
0: Oh. oh, your line isn't clear, Gabello. Let's put you back to the producers and we'll get you to move into a position that's much clearer. Give us a call this afternoon with your science-related questions. We've got the Naked Scientist now, 011-883-0702. Peter, you're in Germiston with a question to as well. Good afternoon, Chris. I hope you're well. Um, All things considered, so raw materials, the manufacturing process, the percentage of recycled stuff, what is better for the environment, to get drinks in a glass or in tin cans? Mm,
1: All things considered. Hi, Peter. This really is an impossible question to answer. In general, and be accurate. So one has to answer it generically, and how one would size up each individual product. Because what has become apparent is that people were being very virtuous and coming up with all kinds of things you can recycle and all kinds of ways of being think- being environmentally friendly. But they're not doing what they call the complete life cycle analysis. When you make a product, there's obviously the cost of making the product, the cost in terms of the use of water, the use of energy, the release of carbon dioxide, the cost of putting that product on the shelves. Then there's the cost of you buying the product, taking it home, consuming it, using it. And then what do we do with it? Well, you might throw it away. You might recycle it. You might uh, find a new use for it. And all of these things need to be taken into account when working out the overall carbon footprint, the overall energy footprint, the overall water footprint for any given product. So a a really extreme example of this, say I lived in the middle of nowhere and I had a really, really long driveway to my house and I had a recycling bin outside my house. I could put my plastic bottle I've just used in there and go, brilliant, now someone's going to recycle that. The recycling truck would have to drive enormous distances to get to my venue in order to get my plastic bottle. When one then says, well, how much diesel have they burned to come and get my bottle? They've actually made a bigger carbon footprint than if I'd just actually thrown the bottle in the bin and put it in landfill. So one has to be very cautious about how you actually do these calculations and what the average use analysis for the thing is. The, I think, optimum way of thinking about this, is if you had a glass bottle and you used it many, many times, and between times you washed it out and you sterilized it, but you could do that in an energy economic way, because when you put glass through a bottle washer, it has a very high specific heat capacity. You've got to put a lot of energy in to get the water really hot, to get the glass really hot, to get it sterile and clean. If that's a bigger energy cost than using a plastic bottle, then more people are going to be more tempted to use the plastic and and not use glass. So you've got to take all this into account and it will vary. Different products um, are not going to be suitable for some things compared to others. Different uses, different environments and so on. So it will very much come down to horses for courses here.
0: Hmm. Alright, So that's a, a more comprehensive breakdown. Thank you for the question, Peter. Gabelo, we've got you now. Uh, what's on your
1: mind? I was asking what is the, what is a medium or large meteor meat that has enough power to devastate or destroy parts of the Earth. That is, and is currently gaining on Earth, or is in space, mm. based
0: on the Cairo scale, from one to ten. Based
1: on the Cairo scale, right. from okay. one to ten.
0: Thank okay. you, Gabelo.
1: Well, um, a meteor is something that comes into Earth from outer space, as Gabelo says and they can be from a range of sources and they include asteroids they include bits of other debris and dust they include bits of comets as well and as they come in through the earth's atmosphere then they don't generally stay intact many of these objects especially if they're bigger ones do tend to fall apart but they range in size thankfully the really big ones are really rare the really small ones, are really, really common. And as the Earth goes round on its orbit, we very frequently pass through clouds of dust and other material which are out there loitering in our solar system. And as we sweep through that cloud of dust, we do encounter uh, a lot of meteors, and some of them do make it to the ground as meteorites. These are very small objects on the whole that put on a nice light show as they come down, but they don't do damage when they land. As they get bigger, of course, the amount of energy is increasing because a bigger object has more kinetic energy because it weighs more and if it's got more kinetic energy it's got more energy to lose and it can therefore do more damage there's a number of really good examples of of impacts that happened within living memory that we can use to quantify this and if you cast your mind back to about 2013 the Chelyabinsk impactor came in over russia and people caught this on dash cams they caught it on mobile phones These objects came in, we think they broke up into a number of independent objects quite high up in the atmosphere, but as they came through the air, they created such a big shockwave that they smashed loads of windows in buildings and then disappeared into Lake Chelyabinsk, and they found a big hole in the ice which would account for where the meteor had gone when it landed. But that object started out the size of a big house. So something the size of a big house can easily... ...smash as it comes in through just the shockwaves it makes... ...all the windows in lots of houses in the city. So the amount of energy is absolutely huge. When you go even bigger than that... ...and you get to, say, kilometre across... ...to three kilometres across type size... ...then you're into the realms of the thing that did for the dinosaurs. The Chicxulub crater down in Mexico would have been caused by something... ...on the scale of kilometre sizes... And the amount of energy in there is so big, it can change the climate on the scale of the whole planet wow. and in the process could cause life-ending, devastating extinction. As we saw with the, the dinosaurs were, were were shuffled off the earth because the climate was so perturbed. Among other things, there are probably other contributors as well, but that happened 65 million years ago and wiped out dinosaurs. So there is, there's a sort of stepping scale from very small, nice light show Nice uh, blob that lands on the ground that you can find and be impressed you found a meteorite right through to something the size of, you know, a small town Mm. which can come in. And if that happens, it's going to it's going to destroy uh, the potential for life on Earth for a while.
0: Right. Gabela, thank you for that question. Let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we've got questions about calculus and more. The Naked Scientist. Right. Let's get in some of your WhatsApps and your voice notes as well for Dr. Chris Smith Take
1: a listen, Chris. Hi, it's Mandla from Pretoria. I just wanted to ask Dr. Chris, um, what is the best way to learn calculus? Does it involve drawing shapes and vectors and functions? Like, what is the practical way, the easy way? Thanks.
0: Okay, best way to learn calculus?
1: I've never been asked that, but it puts me in mind of I remember sitting in my A level maths class at school and we were learning. Uh, integration and differentiation both parts of calculus and I remember one of my friends being bamboozled by this and saying what is the point of this Mm -hmm. if I'm walking down the street what what do I see a tree that's been differentiated and I have to integrate it to put it back to being normal or something Uh, it, it is hard to see the point of this sometimes but believe me it's incredibly powerful And Isaac Newton helped to invent it. There's a bit of contention around that because someone else thought it up at the same time. And Isaac Newton was horrible to him and said, no, you stole my ideas. But it dates back several hundred years. But it's a cornerstone of mathematics that's incredibly powerful. But the only way to learn this is to practice. And you start simple and do it simply with a series of exercises that teach you how to do it how to apply this under what circumstances and then build up from there but practice makes perfect and the way i learned it was literally with a book and lots of worked examples and just keep doing it until you work out how to do it and do it right so uh, i know that's not really answering the question (laughs) in the sense that it's it's really what works for you but it's all about practice and for me maths was never an intuitive thing i'm not one of those people that looks at the world and sees numbers, which, you know, my mathematician friends do. I mean, they viscerally experience the world as they see relationships between numbers immediately. And they're they're kind of the spectrum of colors through which they see the world are very much numerical color schemes. And seeing how one thing relates to another numerically, I don't have that brain connection. I have to learn these things the hard way. And that's what I did with calculus.
0: Right. Okay. (laughs) Um, Let's go to John in Kempton Park. Hello, John.
1: Hello, how
0: are you? Good, well. Yeah, uh, my question is to the naked scientist. Why is seawater salty? Okay. Why is seawater salty, Chris?
1: Right, the reason that the seas are salty is because of the water cycle. The sun shines on the sea surface. When each square metre of the sea surface gets hit by energy from the sun at the rate of about a kilowatt, it causes evaporation. But what evaporates off the surface of the sea isn't salt because salt are charged particles and they're much harder to separate from the water. So what evaporates is pure water vapour. The water vapour goes up into the air and as it rises with rising warm air, the air temperature cools and as a result of that, it becomes much harder for the water to remain as a vapour. So it condenses and forms droplets. And you see where I'm going with this. Those droplets form clouds. So now we've got a whole heap of fresh water up in the atmosphere. The clouds are being blown along on winds, and what do they tend to do? Well, they tend to go over land. As they go over land, the changing topography of the Earth's surface means you drive the air currents higher, which means that you can't sustain the water upwards up there anymore because more and more water condenses out, making the droplets bigger and bigger. So eventually they fall, as you guessed it, Rain. That rain is pretty much pure water. Dissolves a few things from the air on the way down, including stuff like carbon dioxide to make carbonic acid and sulfur dioxide to make sulfurous and sulfuric acid. But it's pretty pure. It's salt-free. It hits the Earth's surface and soaks into the soil and soaks through rocks. In the course of doing that, it picks up minerals, including salts, which then go into the pure water, making very very slightly salty water so all lakes and all streams and all rivers have got tiny amounts of salt dissolved in them not enough for you to taste they're just there in tiny amounts where do all rivers flow to they all flow into the sea so in other words that tiny amount of salt gets added to the sea so what started off as pure water from something very salty then adds more salt to the thing it came from so over time over millions of years you're slowly adding spoonful by spoonful dissolve salts to the sea wow. so anything that comes out of the sea is pure water up into the air but what goes back is slightly salty water so over time the sea progressively accumulates salt until it reaches what's called an equilibrium position where if you chemically add any more salt then it takes part in other reactions that will sequester the salt or cause it to precipitate into various crystals of various types but you therefore have a steady state give or take level of saltiness of the sea And that is why the sea is salty. And most inland water bodies are fresh. They're not salty, with the exception of things like the Dead Sea, where they're an evaporating site where lots of rivers have flowed into them. And the water then evaporates up into the sky, leaving a super saline solution behind. But that's the only exception.
0: Mm, Thank you. Detailed. Thank you very much, Chris. Um, Enjoy the rest of your Monday. Till next week, we've got elections. We've got elections. Yeah. So, yeah, it's a different kind of Monday for us next week. But Thank you as <laughs> it's always. Indeed. All <laughs> right.
1: Take care. That, bye, Azza.
0: Bye. That's the Naked Scientist.